all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 256 with the Mount Sinai Lime Conference speaker, Dr. Neil Spector. Also welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you're going to learn three main things. How understanding the regulation of infection in the body is how HIV was brought under control, and it will be how Lyme disease is brought under control. The ways Lyme disease interventions would benefit from the same precision drug engineering as they do in cancer research. And the drug research Neil Spector is involved in that starts with identifying the drugs that have the best chance of physically interacting with Lyme bacteria. Thanks, Aurora, and a big shout out to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. You're the reason we have way more than half a million downloads. <laughs> Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lime Ninja. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. And this past week we've had listeners join from Calgary to Coquitlam, Canada. So only listeners from Canada this only week? Only Canada represent this this week. Okay. <laughs> Welcome, Canada. We're glad to have you tuning in. All right, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about Dr. Neil Spector. Dr. Spector's undiagnosed Lyme disease damaged his heart so badly that he had to get a heart transplant. Intravenous antibiotics finally brought the Lyme disease under control, and Dr. Spector now brings his expertise in treating cancer to developing Lyme treatments. Thanks, Aurora. And here is Dr. Spector's presentation at the 2019 Lime Mine Conference. Thank you. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. I appreciate uh, the invitation from uh, Mount Sinai, certainly from uh, indebted to the Cohen Foundation. Um, this is my 10-year uh, anniversary, a little past of my transplant, 17-year uh, journey from a misdiagnosis of Lyme disease and a pretty severe case, obviously, of Lyme carditis. Uh, and, um, you know, here I am, thankfully, well and not running marathons anymore. I, I tell the story that my wife told me I've had my one body part replacement for my lifetime, so... I cut it down to half marathons, so, um, but I'm very grateful for my, my donor um, for giving me this chance at Second Life. So again, what I'm going to show you, and I'm going to focus on uh, our work, um, since I have a captive audience here, I figure I could show you some really exciting data, which I hope you'll find exciting. We're certainly thrilled about the direction we're heading in. The, the title of the talk is The State of the Art. Um, just very briefly, there's really several approaches, and again, I'll be talking more about rational drug design, uh, therapeutic strategies for tick-borne diseases, and actually really for any disease. And so one is, and, and you'll hear about this later, so I'm not going to talk about this. There's tremendous expertise that will discuss disulfiram. I know there's a lot of interest, um, Dabsone. Uh, there's groups at Stanford, at Hopkins, at Northeastern, um, Dr. Horowitz will be talking, uh, Legner will be, Ken Legner will be talking. Um, so I'm, I'm going to let the experts talk about this. But, but there's a lot of work going into 
screening drugs that are already approved, the FDA-approved library. The advantage to that is if something's found, the drug's already approved. So disulfiram, Dapsone, you don't have to go through FDA approval to take a drug that's already approved. So that's a huge advantage. The downside is you've got a drug that has, could have warts, could have toxicity, could have other issues, um, and is often very difficult to optimize. If you want to make a better drug, it's difficult because you don't necessarily know the exact targets. So people talk, may talk about disulfiram as being an, an inhibitor of a certain enzyme in the body, but in point of fact, there's a lot of activity that disulfiram has that probably contributes to its clinical efficacy, not just in Lyme disease, but in cancer and other diseases as well. Um, I'm going to be really focusing on molecular targeted therapies, and there's great examples in the field that I've spent 30 years in, in oncology, where we've really transformed the treatment, I'm not going to say mission accomplished yet by any means, but we've certainly gotten away from relying on chemotherapy to the point where we have targeted therapies. I'll show you one slide of the first uh, individual of a drug that I developed for breast cancer, a pretty remarkable pill that you take. Um, and uh, this woman, you'll see the response that she had. Um, new therapies, everyone's seen the TV commercials. You know, I have lung cancer. I never thought I'd see my grandson graduate, and here I am today. I go to clinics, so I was in clinic on Thursday. I see people now with diseases, metastatic bladder cancer, lung cancer, that in my lifetime, when I was training as a fellow in Boston 20-something years ago, I never thought I'd be able to tell someone with metastatic cancer that they'd have an opportunity to be cured. And here we are with people who are walking around without getting chemotherapy, who essentially, I think, are going to be cured of their metastatic disease. Um, and in the infectious disease world, we have examples of that as well, HIV. So HIV, as I'll show you in a second, was really not controlled by taking drugs that are FDA approved. It was controlled by understanding the regulation of the virus that causes HIV and developing what's now called heart therapy. Um, and many people now believe that HIV is, is completely controlled because people who take their medication religiously can have no viral load um, and therefore essentially may be cured of their disease. Um, and hepatitis C is another example of rational drug design using scientific information to specifically target the hepatitis C virus. There's immunotherapies. I think uh, Bill Robinson will be talking about some uh, exciting work from Stanford, so I'm not going to dwell on that. And then medicinal herbs, and there's going to be talks today. But what I want to talk about, so here's the data. Again, I'm old enough to remember being an intern and a resident in medicine. In the days, uh, actually even the days before we knew it was HIV, we used to see drug addicts come in. Um, I was in Dallas, so people have seen the Dallas Buyers Club. I used to see people who come in from Oak Lawn, um, you know, sick with lymph nodes, fevers, all sorts of weird infections that no one had seen for decades. Uh, and initially, we had one drug, AZT, and people would get better for a little while, and then they'd die of their opportunistic infections. And then we had two drugs, and people would get better for six months longer and then die of their opportunistic infections. And now, again, because of smart drug design and understanding the genomic information that the science revealed, we have triple drug therapy that essentially now controls the disease. So this is the state, and you can, all of you who are here, because in one way or another, we're all affected by Borrelia, Bartonella, Babesia, all those bad bees. Um, 
this is the state of, of cancer treatment and cancer evaluation. A patient comes in with a newly diagnosed cancer. They either have their tumor or blood samples sent for genomic profiling to look to see which mutations that tumor expresses that may be amenable to the lists of targeted therapies that are now FDA approved, and now this new generation of immunotherapies that unleash the immune system to recognize and kill cancer. Um, now, you can contrast this to where we are with Lyme disease, right? We've got bad blood tests that people, at least some people, believe is the holy grail. You know, if you don't have your five bands, God forbid, on Western blot, but you have third-degree heart block and Bell's palsy, then you're called idiopathic. Um, I know I've said this before, I don't have a slide, but you do know what idiopathic stands for. It stands for idiot doctor, pathetic patient. So, um, anyway, only if, as a physician I feel like I could say that. So, so this, is how, this is how we treat cancer. Uh, we don't do this blindly anymore. Uh, we really try to tailor the therapy, personalize the therapy for the individual. So this was, this was a, a drug that I spent uh, doing a lot of the science behind. We developed an oral therapy for women with what's called HER2 breast cancer. It's about 15 to 20% of breast cancer. When I was training uh, years ago at the Dana-Farber, this was a death sentence. A woman who had HER2 breast cancer had about six to nine months with metastatic disease. And even with early stage, the risk of recurrence was extraordinarily high. This is an oral therapy. This woman has what's called inflammatory breast cancer. You can see that she's had a mastectomy. It's come back. That's like having a third-degree burn that went all the way down her back, eroding into her lung cavity and into her lungs. She was on a morphine drip, not only as a short quality of life for inflammatory breast cancer, but it's a lousy quality of life. We put her on this pill. It's a once-a-day pill. And literally within three weeks, she was out playing golf. I didn't actually believe the physician when he told me this is a miracle <coughs> therapy. But it's a miracle because we figured out how to shut the lights out in the tumor cell. Again, this happened by understanding the biology and taking advantage of the Achilles heel of these particular cancers. And so the question is, why can't we do this for Borrelia, for Bartonella, for Babesia? The answer is we can. And here's a potential roadmap. So here's a paper that was published in 1997, so 22 years ago. I haven't been to too many conferences in the Lyme disease world where people have actually talked about the genomic roadmap for developing therapies. So this was the genome that was published, and this is essentially the pathways in Borrelia where one can look and try to figure out how can we kill these bugs without taking you know, an atomic bomb and blowing up the body and do this in a smart way, just as I showed you with that woman, rather than giving her chemotherapy, giving her a pill that revealed the Achilles heel of that cancer and destroyed it. So this is what we've done. So we've taken a slightly different approach. We're not screening the FDA-approved library. We're developing new therapies based on scientific information. Now, we've done this in a way and brought in collaborators. It turns out that there's a group at Argonne National Lab outside Chicago who have the largest genomic database of prokaryotes of bacteria in the world. And in their top 10 list is Borrelia and Bartonella, which I thought was rather interesting because 
this lab is a Department of Energy lab, and I thought that it was interesting that the government has Beryllium Bartonella as part of their top 10 in trying to collect genomic information. So for a disease that a lot of the government doesn't want to recognize as being important, it's important enough that it's on their top 10 list of getting all the genomic information of the world uh, to accumulate. So we worked with this group, and what we do, we have a technology in collaboration with a very good friend and colleague who I've worked with for 13 years since I've been at Duke on the cancer side, Tim Haystead, and I'll show you the picture of our team uh, later. Um, we have a way of capturing a part of the genome, a part of the, what we call the proteome, the proteins that are made in Borrelia and Bartonella um, that happen to utilize ATP uh, and other purines. Um, and it turns out if we use this technology, that's about 80 to 90 percent of the druggable targets. And again, this is a, an approach that has been successfully used in other diseases, in cancer, in metabolic diseases. So we're not reinventing the wheel. We're taking successful lessons that have been learned elsewhere and now just simply saying, can we do this smarter by treating folks with tick-borne illnesses? And so what essentially we do is we take the bacteria, um, and again, when we identify a target, we've gone to this huge genomic database because we don't want to just be treating one particular species or strain of Borrelia. We want to be treating across the species and strains that are pathogenic, same with Bartonella. Um, but we don't want to also be wiping out the normal microbiome. And we certainly don't want to be affecting host cells. So we don't want to be affecting your heart, your kidney, your normal tissues. And so this is a gel. This is taking all the proteins in Borrelia, running them out, um, and then essentially saying, what are the targets that are amenable? What are the protein targets with this technology, this purine binding technology? We have this huge list of proteins. We painstakingly do mass spec on every one of these to identify them. And then we look and we try to glean the information from the literature and from experts and say, what are the ones that, if we can successfully target, are likely to kill these bugs? Um, I'm just going to skip through. This is some of the, the technical aspects. We take each one of these targets. So this is sort of laborious research, um, although we have a tremendous team and we've got it down pretty quickly now, almost like a biotech company. Even though we're in an academic institution, we make recombinant proteins. We put a color GFP, green fluorescent protein, and we have a high throughput assay. We've got 5,000 novel compounds that could be drugs, and we screen them to see which of those 5,000 compounds can target the particular protein target that we're interested in. And by the way, the 5,000 doesn't sound like a lot, but we can expand that based on the structure of those chemicals into hundreds of thousands of compounds very quickly. And so this is what we have so far. So we have the targets on the left, DNA, K, Borrelia, Borrelia. We've had a lot more in Borrelia than Bartonella. We're now working with Ed Breitschwert. Many of you know him from the NC State School of Veterinary Medicine, probably the leading expert on Bartonella. Um, and now we've got several new Bartonella targets. Uh, and as of our last um, lab meeting on Tuesday, I think we have an exciting Bartonella target that we're going to be able to do, what I'm going to show you in a minute, uh, we're doing with Borrelia. So, this is work that we've done, again, uh, with Tim Hayset, a colleague, uh, that'll introduce what I want to show you, which we hope will end up being a Borrelia scan. 
so that you could go to your doctor and rather than saying how many bands on a Western blot or do you have PCR positivity, you can actually visualize the bacteria in your body. So if you went into your doctor, imagine you said, I got pain in my left shoulder, I got chest pain, and I think I was bitten by a tick. Rather than having all these questions, you could actually visualize it just like we do with cancer and see the bugs. This is really based, again, on lessons that have been successfully translated from the bench into the clinic. So this is work. We had a large Defense Department grant for breast cancer where we developed a probe using human uh, heat shock protein 90. It's a very abundant protein. There happens to be a Borrelia equivalent called HTPG, high temperature protein G. Um, it's a very important protein in mammalian cells, HSP90, because it prevents damaged protein from accumulating, which if allowed to accumulate would kill the cells. So it's, it's a highly conserved evolutionary family of proteins that protects against environmental stresses or internal stresses of the cell that damage protein and would otherwise kill the cell. So what we did in this case is we took HSP90, an inhibitor, we labeled it with a uh, probe that could be visualized, um, and uh, in a sense, uh, well, you, unfortunately the lighting, you can't really see it, but we could visualize tumor in these mice growing human breast cancers over normal tissue. And so the idea of this is if a woman has a mammography, has an abnormality, and only 10% of those turn out to really be cancer, that rather than doing unnecessary biopsies and unnecessary angst, that you could do a scan that would discriminate between malignant and normal tissue, and also ideally identify areas, what we call minimal disease states, um, that are hiding in the body. This is actually in the clinic now. And so what we did is we targeted the Borrelia form of HSP90. Again, it's called HTPG. Um, and to make a longer story short, we looked for compounds in the library and also compounds that we had already developed um, against the human form of HSP90 for our breast cancer project, looking for compounds that would identify Borrelia, but not the human form, because again, if we're gonna make a scan and a therapeutic, we don't want this targeting human tissue. And also selecting for compounds that, don't that can discriminate between Borrelia and the normal microbiome, in this case, E. coli. And so we found this compound. Um, it's called 196, and there are a few others. This normally twirls around, but I don't think I have the controls for it. So these are just spirochetes. So in the left, I call that the Hawaiian Islands. Um, the 198, so the probe for the Borrelia protein. So again, this targets a protein in Borrelia, very abundant in Borrelia burgdorferi, Miyamotoi. It is across the species and strains. So we're not targeting just 5% of people with Lyme disease. We're selecting targets, in this case for imaging, but I'll show you how we're using it for therapeutic, that will affect all of the species and strains. So we went from Borrelia growing in culture to working with Monica Embers at Tulane um, and doing a mouse study where we infected the mice with Borrelia. We waited three weeks. Um, and then we injected the probe, and we wanted to see whether it would identify Borrelia in tissues. And again, the bluish is the, the 198, so you could see infected animals. Um, there's cartilage from the ear, which is where Borrelia loves to hang out. There's also the joint, the tibiotarsal joint. You could see that using uh, the 198 probe, the bluish probe, 
Um, we could identify Borrelia. Uh, these are just obviously localized uh, uh, images. Um, and then we counterstain when we take the tissue out with a Borrelia antibody to make sure that what that probe is identifying is Borrelia, and in fact it does. And now we're doing in vivo animal studies where we're going to visualize in vivo, uh, and those are ongoing as we speak, uh, to see if we could actually scan. Now this fluorescent probe is, is not prime time for, for the clinic because it does not get good depth in the body. So we could scan and probably visualize cartilage, uh, infected cartilage, or the joint, but to get the heart and brain, this is not going to be sufficient. So what we will do is to make PET ligands from this, to take this and make a PET scan. Most people have heard of a PET scan. It's not your dog or cat. Um, but essentially, a PET scan, for the most part, is a scan that uh, is FDG PET. It's taken up by hypermetabolic tissues um, and can identify, in, in my case, what my profession is cancer, but also infection. It doesn't tell you, though, if, if it lights up and you think you have an infection, what the underlying infectious agent is. It just tells you that there's an infection. This, on the other hand, as a PET scan, would tell you that's Borrelia infection. So now, so that's great. So we want to develop a Borrelia scan. We also have some targets that we want to look at for Bartonella because unfortunately this particular target, for whatever reason, is not in the genome of Bartonella. And so we have to look at other particular proteins. So in the cancer world, so now people may have screened one of these drugs, these HSP90 inhibitors, through the FDA-approved library, because there are several that have gone into the clinic in cancer, and maybe found that by themselves, they don't do much to Borrelia, because they don't. They're stress proteins. You have to do something to the cell to make them relevant. You don't just give them to happily growing Borrelia. It doesn't kill them. That's not the way it works. It doesn't do that to human cells either. So what we did is, and again, this is based on the lessons from cancer, where people have taken targeted therapies, and rather just relying on the targeted therapies, have hooked up a poison or a toxin. So this is kind of the magic bullet, where you drive the toxin directly to the cancer and avoid normal tissues. This happens to be a drug called TDM1, which is an anti-HER2 antibody with a drug called mitansine, which is a mitotic poison. Um, this is in the clinic. It's transformed the treatment of uh, the area I've been working on, HER2 breast cancer. So what happens is the antibody recognizes the tumor cells because the HER2 is more prevalent expressed on tumor cells. It has the little stars on there, which are the mitansine. It gets internalized in the tumor. It releases the mitansine and kills the tumor cells, but really does spare the normal tissue. So this is FDA approved. And we said, why can't we take the same compound that is directing that imaging reagent that I just showed you and hook something onto it that'll bring it into Borrelia, that'll kill Borrelia and spare normal tissue. So what is Borrelia, what are the things that Borrelia hates? One of the things that most cells hate are radical oxygen species. You know, it's interesting, we've, we've gotten very accustomed to growing Borrelia now. Um, Borrelia hates oxygen, um, even though it, it's not a complete anaerobe, but it likes living in low oxygen tension. So, if you stress these bacteria, I don't care whether they're in an exponential spirochetal state or round body state, with lots 
of oxygen radicals, it's, it's a death sentence, as I'm going to show you. So what did we hook that compound? So we actually have a drug that has two parts. It's got the HTPG-targeted therapy, the, the part that selectively drives it to Borrelia. And I can tell you that Borrelia sucks that compound up like a vacuum cleaner. So when we culture Borrelia with this compound, so we, we take the drug that gets sucked in, and we're very interested in how it gets sucked in, a transporter or some other mechanism. When we hook it to, it turns out, an FDA-approved drug called vertiporphyrin. Now, vertiporphyrin is a dye, is a, is a porphyrin derivative that, when activated by light, <clears throat> simple red light, 680 wavelength, um, generates lots of radical oxygen species. And it doesn't just, it's not a one-to-one. -one. one molecule of vertiporphyrin generates one uh, ox radical molecule of radical oxygen. It is like a catalyst. It churns out, I don't know how many, but it's just churning out radical oxygen species. So you get one molecule of vertiporphyrin in, let alone thousands of molecules into Borrelia, hit them with red light, you would expect it's going to kill those bacteria. Again, the beauty is, is that what's targeting the vertiporphyrin, the dye, which is FDA approved. So it's FDA approved for hyperproliferative eye issues. So wet macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, of course now we have VEGF inhibitors. Um, what would happen is the ophthalmologist would inject you systemically and then shine a red light in your eye and would essentially destroy the overgrowth of those uh, blood vessels that were abnormal. There are precautions. You don't want to necessarily inject this and go sunbathing because it gets into all your tissues and you'll end up with third-degree burns. Um, there are other toxicities too, which is why we want to target this. It makes sense, right, to target this to where you want to go, which is Borrelia, and kill the bugs. So uh, let me just go back one. Can I go back? Okay. So I just want to set this up to show you. So what I'm going to show you is a movie of Borrelia in the lab. Um, there's going to be four conditions, because it's going to go fast and I can't stop it. So there's going to be DMSO, which is the control. All of them are treated with red light. So they're all treated with the same red light, pulses of red light, one-second pulses of red light, 680. Same stuff you can get with an LED. Pulses of red light, so DMSO is the control, and you'll see lots of squiggly spirochetes in there. Um, HS10 is the, is the targeting drug by itself. You'll see lots of viable Borrelia. Vertiporphyrin by itself. Now, vertiporphyrin at high concentrations in the presence of red light, not necessarily by itself, will kill, and you'll see that. And the last one you'll see, which hopefully you'll see the difference, is the vertiporphyrin dragged into the Borrelia by the targeted therapy, okay? So there's DMSO by itself. You see all the little squiggly things. They look happy. They're doing okay. There's the HS10. They look happy. That's the HSPG alone. Here's the vertiporphyrin. It definitely kills, especially at that concentration. But here's what happens when you drag it in and hit them with the light. There's really nothing left. It's a complete wasteland. And let me just show you the data. So the y-axis is percent viability. This is using Bactite or Glow. But we've done this. You can't find anything when we try to regrow these bacteria in normal conditions. 
So the, again, we grow the bacteria to stationary. We grow them to 10 to the eighth bacteria. So there are lots of bugs. Um, we then hit them. So those are two compounds, HS201, HS205. HS201 gets into mammalian cells, so it's, that's not going to be a good candidate. HS205 is Borrelia specific and turns out to be incredibly potent. Um, and then vertiporphyrin alone. All of these treated uh, with red light, and you can see the difference. The EC50 is essentially the concentration that requires to kill the bugs that's halfway between baseline and maximum killing. So it's, so it's fine to kill these. Do they regrow? So if you treat them and then you wash them out and you put them back in good, nice culture medium and you put them in the dark because you don't want them to be exposed to light just in case there's drug around, do they regrow? The answer is no. They're dead. And in fact, some of them are, die that you thought might be viable are still dying. So they're probably undergoing some what's called programmed cell death or apoptosis. Um, and you can see that on the bottom, that straight drop is uh, the regrowth, 99 nanomolars. That's very, very potent. It's a potent compound. Um, we're talking about low nanomolar uh, concentrations that kill these bugs. Now, this is interesting. So if you expose Borrelia to the drug and you put them in the dark, so you just want to see, you don't want to kill them necessarily with the drug, because again, in the absence of red light, it doesn't kill. And now you say, what if we wash them out? So we, we expose them for 24 hours, 48 hours in the dark, and you can see they're viable in the dark. We wash the drug out, so we wash them extensively. So is there, do they take it up? And then can we kill them later? So we incubate them in the dark. We wash out the drug, multiple washes, as best we can. And then we expose them to the red light. And now they're actually even more sensitized than they were if you just treated them outright. So they're sucking the drug up. The drug is retained. That 205, by the way, we've done animal studies. It does not get into mammalian cells. So that drug will go to Borrelia and do that to Borrelia, but not do that to your liver, your kidney, or any other tissue. So what I would envision is that we'll have a drug like 205, and we need to work out the conditions. We need to understand how much red light you need, but where you would get an injection. Oh, and by the way, the red light with doxycycline does nothing. So if you want to sit in front of a red light, that's good, but it's probably not going to do much on its own. Now, you might ask, okay, does red light get deep in your body? The answer is yes. It gets deep in your body. And in fact, here's a study from the Mass General from Spalding, I think, where the guy's got his nice little cap on. They do, they're doing studies for traumatic brain injury and PTSD. So there's little LED lights in there getting red light into the brain. And they've done these nice, I don't understand the Stroop test, but the executive function improves, and they're finding pretty dramatic results in treating with red light therapy for PTSD and TBI, traumatic brain injury. So red light penetrates deep into the body. It doesn't come out, so you can't visualize it, but it gets in deep. So here's the platform. We can attach a lot of different things. Um, we can put chemotherapy on. We can put a lot of different things and drag it in. And we think we have a good target now for Bartonella as well. So in summary, there's great data, you're going to hear about it, it's exciting, repurposing FDA-approved drugs. We're doing it in a different way. We have a number of other targeted therapies which we think on, its, on their own 
may actually deal a death knoll to Borrelia and Bartonella. Um, this red light may be in combination with Dapsone and other drugs, may be the real hit that, that eliminates bacteria once and for all. Here's our team. Um, folks from, you can see Steve Phillips behind the primate. Uh, Dana Parrish giving you a nice hug. Monica Embers um, working with Ying. Appreciate the work that he did with us. Team at Duke. Um, here's all the people. Again, we would not be able to do this without the Cohen Foundation. And I am right on time. So thank you very much. I think you want me to stay up here. Sit in the far seat. You can take any seat you want. Okay. Hey. It's me. Thank you. So Neil. Uh, it's very exciting, the research that you're doing. Can you tell us what comes next? And, you know, if you continue to have experimental success with this, you know, for the people in the audience, what does it actually take to go from basic bench research to actually a drug in the clinic? What are the timelines? What are the steps? Right. You know. So, um, so I've been fortunate to have been involved in the development of two cancer drugs that went from the bench into the clinic and FDA approval, the one for breast cancer and one for pediatric leukemia. Um, what a, the impediment that I see here is not necessary. I mean, we'll optimize this. We're doing what's called you know, crystallographic structure analysis of Borrelia HTPG to try to make you know, more potent compounds um, and understand you know, how we can modify drugs to have different properties, perhaps. I think the challenge is, and I'd be interested if people want to start tweeting and uh, texting, is the FDA approval process. So as I mentioned, the, the advantage to doing FDA-approved drugs is you don't have to go through the process. You know, if we take this into animal, so the next step for this is animal studies, yeah. tox studies, um, and then we would work towards an IND, an investigational new drug application with the FDA. And then I think comes the hard part. I think the easy part is the science. The hard part is, how do you get a drug approved for a disease state where the FDA doesn't recognize that there's a problem. And so, you know, we would love to say we want to develop this in, you know, chronic borreliosis um, or another one for Bartonella. Uh, but if there's no, um, if, if the government agency, the FDA, doesn't believe that there is an indication, then we would probably either have to go into the acute setting and then, you know, it's like cancer, right? People do um, either start with metastatic disease and work back. You have to go where the low-hanging registration fruit is, so to speak, yeah. and then work your way forward. In this case, we would have to consider um, what's the quickest way we could get this approved and then have it used off-label even. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think I'd be curious for a lot of the, the people out there who may have been involved in this, but... Um, again, I, I think the science part, the next step is animal studies, uh, mice. We're working with uh, Monica Embers because she's got a great primate model, so to do primate, um, and then do the, what they call the requisite pre-IND tox, pharmacokinetics, um, you know, the, 
The, uh, the one advantage is the per- vertiporphyrin component is FDA approved. Right. The new part uh, is the targeting agent, which isn't. So, um, so I would like to think that we can move quickly. It's, it's, everything is dependent upon resources and money, yeah. um, and that's just the way it is, because these, uh, these studies to go from bench to clinic become quite expensive because they have to be done under rigorous way, what they call good manufacturing practices, good laboratory practices. You can't just go in your garage and do an experiment and say we want that to be FDA approved, or I can't even do it in my lab and say I want it to be FDA approved. They have to be done in laboratories that have rigorous standards so that when you present a package to the FDA and say here's the data that supports the use of this in borreliosis, acute or chronic Bartonella, that your experimental design meets the rigorous standards. And so those have to be done. And to do those in those laboratories, you know, costs more money than doing it in my Duke laboratory. And so assuming things go well, what, what are the timelines just for actually getting uh, a new drug out? I mean, are we talking five years, 10 years, 15 years from where you are now, going into animal models, and then ultimately um, being accessible to individuals who are ill? What does that look like? So I, I think the, um, so the first step, to answer, I'm going to answer the two yeah. parts. The first one is the, the diagnostic. If we make a PET ligand, um, that goes in quickly, right? Because that's a diagnostic that has a lower uh, hurdle to cross. It's going to be one injection. There are studies called phase zero studies where you give much lower doses um, and not even do tox on those. I mean, we can get into the semantics, but... Um, you know, if we could, again, um, if we could make a PET ligand using that compound, we could be in the clinic in a, in a year, within a year, doing testing. Yeah. The therapeutic, so the advantage to that would be, number one, even if it's a single injection, we would have some safety data just with the, the targeting compound. And we would also have proof of concept that we could visualize Borrelia. I would say... You know, we're thrilled because you rarely get a hit like this. The, on a, I mean, I've spent 30 years in cancer research and, um, you know, and 15 years in drug development. Um, you often painstakingly go through, you know, bad experiment after bad experiment. Um, and so working, the, the people that I've, I work with, particularly at Duke, are all seasoned, you know, cancer researchers, basic scientists. When they saw this sort of data, they were doing handsprings. And so I think that um, it's a good sign. (laughs) And they're very skeptical. So they had no skin in the game of Lyme disease. They were just pure biochemists, chemists, drug developers. Um, And so I think, again, it's, you know, if we have the resources to do this, we could be in the clinic in a short period of time. I mean, within five years, two, three years. Um, It all depends on how much resource you have to drive. And so outside of... Uh, resources, then one of the primary barriers is diagnostics, which is, it seems surprising in some ways that to get to a new drug, you actually need a new diagnostic. And so, in, in watching your talk, you know, it was one of my reactions was, how cool would it be to be able to actually see the Borrelia? <laughs> right. But it actually becomes fundamental. Uh, so it almost be like a companion diagnostic, which is yeah. the thing with happening in cancer, right? A companion diagnostic, which in most cases in cancer, it turns out to be a mutation. 
for a drug that targets the mutated protein or immunotherapy for a particular phenotype of cancer. Um, so we could develop the you know, companion diagnostic. You're right. The challenge is always the FDA requires a population, an yeah. indication. You can't just say, we want to treat everyone with chronic illness with this. Um, you have to have something on the label. Um, you, can, you, you can do that with Dapsone, you can do it with Disulfiram because they're approved, and you can just, you know, if your doctor will prescribe it, you can take it. Yeah. Um, but for a new drug, you need to have an indication. Yeah. Um, now, it's interesting, it, unfortunately, he's no longer the FDA commissioner, but I, I'm a good friend of Ned Sharpless, who's the head of the NCI and was acting FDA commissioner um, for a period of time, and I, I still may actually meet with him. He knows my story, um, and just to talk with him about what he thinks an approach would be to you know, go to the FDA. Yeah. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's either, you know, if, if we went after acute Lyme disease, it would probably be based on the gold standard tests yeah. of two-tier testing, unfortunately. Yeah. But the, the name of the game is get something out there, get it approved, and then allow it to be used. Yeah. So, Avi, you work way upstream uh, from Neil. Uh, and I thought maybe it would be interesting for the folks here for you to talk about the druggable genome and why it's important, what it is, and some of the work that you do on that. Yes, yeah, so I think first we uh, should not undermine how much we don't know. So there's still, like even though we, we can have those movies that we can see a whole organism or a cell, we still don't know what's happening really inside of the molecular level. And there is a big part of the genome, the human genome as well as the Borrelia's genomes, that we understand that there are proteins there and we can maybe trace one or two uh, visually where they are, what they do, but there are 20,000 different moieties, molecular species within those cells that we only understand, have a very partial understanding of how they work. So um, if you think about human cells, what the NIH is trying to do, they realize that the FDA-approved targets today they're targeting 500 proteins uh, out of uh, 20, 30,000 possible proteins that they can target. And from those 500 proteins, 80% uh, of them, they target either kinases, ion channels, or GPCRs. So those are specific types of proteins that those drugs can bind to. So within those families, there's hundreds of additional proteins that we know that are important but we don't have drugs for them. We don't understand really what they do. So systematically, we can now um, use computational and experimental methods to impute their function, to associate them with disease, and then uh, enable discovery and going to new routes for drug discovery. So this is uh, the essence of the, this program. Yeah. So, and there's this, there's a program that you work on that's called Lynx. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that's surprising about this is that it seems that you may not need to know uh, the target of a drug in order to develop a new drug. And so can you talk about what this program is, how it's changed people's viewpoint on the druggable genome and some of the promising 
uh, outcomes that may come from that? So I think Lynx is another type of uh, drug screen. It's sort of like what you showed with the 5,000 small molecules that you try all of them in a screen. You have maybe a robot that can tell, like can actually administrate the drug and then uh, collect the data to, before to, uh, and after. Like a tissue to a cell? To a tissue, a cell, yeah. or the borilla, growing borilla, and they see how the drug affects. So you can test thousands of drugs. But the nice, uh, sort of like the innovative things about Lynx is that it, after the, the, the output is, the, is gene expression. So you can see what happens to the cells at the genome-wide level. So the, the expression of each gene is changing before and after the drug treatment. And that creates a signature that you can then query against. And then you can find novel, what novel drugs are doing compared to what the FDA-approved drugs are doing. So you can see that there are a lot of small molecules and drugs that are experimental right now that are doing very similar effects to cells that the approved drugs are doing. So those could be potentially uh, additional better drugs or individualized drugs that are very similar to the existing drugs, but now you open up a whole a greater repertoire of uh, potential uh, drugs that you can translate much quicker without really uh, worrying about uh, exactly what they do. Because those targets that we are identifying uh, usually are not the real truth because many of the successful drugs, they hit a lot of targets. Yeah. So they are, uh, even though we think and that we identify a gene that if you knock it out, you will get the effect, that the desired effect. The drug itself would bind to multi in multiple uh, places and will do some things that you don't expect, and that can lead to side effects. Uh, so we need to sort all that stuff out. Yeah. So we've got uh, some questions from the audience here, and I'm gonna, I like this first one, which says, uh, what can Lyme patient population, what can the Lyme patient population do in terms of pushing the FDA to fast track drugs that you develop like the AIDS community did? Um, so far, the Lyme community hasn't been, had really an effective voice for doing this. So I think this goes to you. Goes <laughs> to me. <laughs> the easy question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think that uh, um, doing, you know, what people have been, I think, increasingly uh, done that seems to be more effective, which is speaking with a unified voice. Yeah. You know, the, the AIDS uh, community really spoke with a unified voice. Um, you know, you look at the breast cancer community uh, speaks generally with a unified voice. Yeah. Um, you can imagine if somebody cut funding for breast cancer research, there'd be, you know, five million women wearing pink marching on D.C., which would have a profound impact. So I think that, again, and I'm just one person, um, and there are people out in the audience that I know are, are really driving, you know, legislative uh, health care reform. Um, I think it just needs to be a continual talk to your congressmen, talk to your senators. Um, those people really do have an impact on the FDA and the NIH. Yeah. Um, it, it's not just a nice thing to do is to talk to your, your representatives. Uh, the funding for those agencies comes from Congress. So if there's pressure to be put on those agencies, 
uh, and it comes from your from Congress and from your senator or whomever, then I think that's the way. I don't, I don't know that we can all go petition the FDA, the new commissioner, yeah. um, but I think working through in, in, a, in a unified way, um, working to, to influence legislators at the national level is, is probably going to be an effective way to do this. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I just think that the, the, to me, and again, I'm just speaking from a personal standpoint, I, I see in meetings like this and other meetings I've been at and people I've talked to, the tide seems to be turning in a favorable way. Um, it's not changing fast enough for a lot of people here, but it is changing. Right. Um, and I hope that that change translates into, uh, you know, being able to get drugs approved faster, being able to get more money appropriated from the NIH for funding research. Um, can I, I saw there was one question about how long yeah. have we grown those? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a I think specific, I, you want to take that one? Yeah, there was a specific. So, yeah. um, so we've grown those almost. Well, let's actually repeat the question. Oh, so the question is, is it on? How long did we regrow the, the treated yeah. Uh, Borrelia? Yeah. Um, so we've grown those now for over two weeks, and there's nothing growing. So okay. we, we feel pretty good. We've also, by the way, done proteomic analysis. There's, it really destroys the whole, the whole protein structure of Borrelia. So I don't expect that there's going to be surviving persisters out of this. I mean, it, so I, I like this question, and I think there, there, there must be uh, an investor in the audience. Um, is there enough of a market to make a novel Lyme drug financially viable? And so I think this is a good question for you because you're on a personal mission, and so far uh, I'm not sure how, you know how far how far ahead you're thinking about you know viable business models other than curing the disease. But you know, you know I went to a meeting a few years ago at Harvard. It was a genomic medicine meeting. There was a, a group of uh, mothers um, whose kids had an inherited metabolic. There were probably an incidence of 800, 500 kids a year in the world with this disease. There was no company. There actually was a company who had a, a therapy that was just sitting on a back shelf because they didn't see a market. These mothers purchased the drug, bought it, formed their own company, manufactured it, and now they're marketing it. All right. And so I'll be honest with you, if Pfizer or Genentech doesn't want to develop it, then I think we all need to have another meeting yeah. with some wealthy people <laughs> and figure out how we can go and develop. I mean, you know, the, the reality nowadays is, <laughs> Well, we could do this, right? I mean, I think research now is increasingly being driven by advocates. Yeah. There are orphan diseases. I, the, the Myeloma Foundation really worked to get three or four new drugs approved. It yeah. wasn't a large pharma. It was a group of people who came together and said, we need to do this, and industry is not doing it. And so that's why I think that we need to organize in a, in a way that um, can make that can make it happen. So I, I don't know that companies are going to be interested in it. I think what would change if there was a good diagnostic and people recognized people, meaning CEOs of companies, the, um, the breadth of this problem, yeah. um, that there are more people, even if you consider the traditional five bands, the two-tier testing, there are more newly diagnosed cases of Lyme disease in the U.S. than breast cancer. So, you know, to put it in perspective, certainly more than HIV. So I think if people um, fully understood the impact, the fact that this is not easy to diagnose, easy to cure for everyone, you know, even if you take the conservative estimates 
um, you know, 10, 20, I mean, Hopkins published 30-something percent of people had persistent chronic problems. Yeah. It's a lot of people with, you know, 340,000 a year, if you take 20% of those, and that just accumulates year after year. So, um, so one, uh, one more specific question to some of the work that you presented here. Can, can this drug actually penetrate or go through biofilms? Have you tested? So, H, so HTPG is actually in biofilms. So we think that it'll actually target biofilms as well. Yeah. Um, I know that, I don't know if Garth Ehrlich is in the audience somewhere, but um, there, I mean, I, we would love to test this in, in models of, of biofilms, um, but, but HTPG is a part of the biofilm, either secreted or as part of the different morphology of Borrelia. Yeah, okay. Well, help me in thanking uh, our panelists here. It was a wonderful talk, and thank you, Avi. that Dr. Spector is using with his research, it kind of reminds me of a talk about uh, University of Virginia Lyme vaccine for dogs. It, that kind of, you know, making all, sure all the puzzle pieces match. You know, that was, what, last year or two years ago? I think it was, it's at least two, we missed last year, so it's two years ago. Yeah. Research is so intricate. It's so complicated. We get a little window into that world with Dr. Spector's presentation. The main takeaway message that I have from listening to him is there's some serious people doing serious research and they're working on it and they're going to figure it out one of these days. In the meantime, there's a lot of other exciting things going on like dosulfurum and herbal antibiotics and all these other approaches that are being used. There is hope. There is help out there. There's some new tests that are coming online. Cornell has a new test that should be out in a year, which I'm thrilled about. And it's going to be able to detect proteins that shed from the Borrelia no matter where it is and no matter what form it is. So if you have Borrelia anywhere buried inside your body, even if it might not show up on uh, antibody test, right? Or maybe we don't know whether it's actually active. This test will tell you whether or not you have Borrelia in your body. So it is possible now in the near future to be able to say, yes, I am completely cleared of Lyme disease. This test seems to be that accurate. So we'll see what happens as it reaches, uh, goes through the testing phases. But there are serious people in serious universities doing serious research, and it's seriously exciting. Do you have any feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything? Send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And if you have any cough drops, please send them to Aurora. Yes, please. <laughs> if you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button. That way you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, share this podcast with a friend. But if you really, really like what we're doing, <laughs> scroll to the bottom of your podcast app and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people just like you. We Our goal is to have two reviews every month. We've had two for November. It's almost halfway through December, and we don't have a review yet. So if you haven't left one, please take two minutes, write a review for us. We'd really, really appreciate it. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know... Ninja jokes are not funny, but we are all 
too afraid to not laugh. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.